following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. Let's start off with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that as your people, we can rejoice in what you do for us. Lord, I pray today that the example of Psalm 51 would open our eyes to see how good you are and it would teach us what it means to follow you more. Lord, in your son Jesus' name, amen. So we're going through the book of Psalms and not the whole thing. That would be like, probably take more than a year for us to make it through the Psalms because you've got some short Psalms, but then you get to Psalm 119 and we could do that for six weeks. Um, So what we're gonna do is we're taking out what we think are some great moments in the book of Psalms to dive in, to look a little deeper, to say, how do we read through these? How does that work? So last week, Psalm 46 was this look of the church and how God loves and defends the church. He is our strength and refuge. This week, we're looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is this, Psalm of David, and it's, it's a really interesting moment because one thing that we're doing as we read the Psalms is I've pulled out some of the like directional language as the Psalm starts. So a lot of these Psalms, they're written by David and some of the priests at his time, and they're written to be sung, to be part of the congregational life. So what you missed at the beginning of what Larry read today was this. A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this is like, this is the preface to the book, right? So the the psalm is, is the meat and the bones, but this is like what's happening around it. And as we dive into this psalm, we need a little bit of a story that comes before it, which is David is of David and Goliath fame, right? That guy. So David is a shepherd. He's anointed to become king. Only problem is, spoiler alert, there's another king. And if there's one thing other kings don't like is when someone else wants to be king. Now, David didn't really want it, but he's anointed by God for this next step. And there's a whole history about how there's not really supposed to be a king in Israel, but the Israelite people want it. And so it happens and it's, that's a whole nother sermon series. But what happens is David defeats Goliath. The the people start falling in love with him. His popularity grows and grows. Well, then Saul, who is king, finds out, hey, David, this guy, God says he's gonna become king. Too bad. I'm Saul, I'm king. That's tough. So then David is chased around by Saul and it's this whole gig, like it's a bad time. And like, it's, uh, it all happens. And here's, you know, it's like Robin Hood almost, you know, David's running around hiding from Saul and this whole thing. Well, then David finally becomes king. Well, as David becomes king, he's anointed by God. He comes in, he rules, he reigns, things are going well. And now what we have to remember is that this time, the Israelites have come out of Egypt They've come into the promised land. And as they are in the promised land, they establish basically an empire. Because think about the Mediterranean, right? The way you get goods around the Mediterranean most of the time is by ship, right? You're gonna sail ship. But at that time, they don't have a lot of vessels that are sailing directly across the Mediterranean. 
They can't do the open ocean. So what do they do? They sail the coastlines. And if you want to take something from Egypt to Greece over land, you have to go through Israel. There's no other way. So the, like, commerce is booming because all the roads that lead from the north to the south run through Israel. So David is, is leading this empire that is growing. Now they're constantly pushing back those enemies who would try and take it from them. Well, in the midst of that, something real special happens, which is David starts believing his own press. He starts thinking, hey, I am king. I am in charge. This is a good gig. Now he's already married. Life is good. But he goes out just chilling on his balcony as kings do. And he starts being a peeping Tom. Because down on a roof, just down the way, is this woman named Bathsheba. And David falls in lust after Bathsheba. Now he's the king. Who's going to stop him? So he has Bathsheba brought up. You know, they have an affair. Right? And David even uses his place of power that it's probably more than just an affair. It is David's abuse of power in this moment. So not only does he do this, he, he takes and says, oh, I, I have a wife, but you know what? This will be better. So now he has sinned already against how God has set things up. He uses his power as king, his influence as king, because like what position does Bathsheba have when the king sends for you? Like, I can't imagine that moment. So that all happens. Well, Bathsheba is married to one of David's military commanders and everybody loves this guy. His name is Uriah. Everyone loves him. Well, David is so lost that he's like, listen, I'm, Bathsheba's gonna be mine. I'm the king. So what he literally does is he tells his commanders, listen, the next time there's a battle, I want you to sound the charge, but tell everyone but Uriah to retreat. So everyone is supposed to advance. They hear the sound, but they know retreat. And Uriah runs off to death. And David doesn't think about it because he's the king and it's good to be king. Well, God's MO is when the people sin against him, he gives them a chance. He sends a prophet to go and show them their sin. So the king has sinned against his neighbor, against God. So he sends Nathan, a prophet. And Nathan, as prophets do, rolls in and tells a story. And I, I love the way Nathan does this because it's so poetic. He rolls in and he goes, David, I need to tell you something. There's a man who has everything. He has herds upon herds. He has sheep. He has cattle. He has it all. He is a rich man who has everything. It's all his. But when company came to town, he sent his servants out to go kill the one sheep of his next door neighbor. And David is enraged. Who is this man? We will punish him. We will take him. And he is like all these pronouncements. And Nathan in just the ultimate mic drop moment looks at him and goes, you are that man. 
And just like Paul, scales fall from his eyes, you know, it opens him in this moment. And before we dive into the psalm and where this goes, that this is, you know, the psalm that David writes after Nathan has revealed this to him. I think there's an important side note here to say, it's easy for us to elevate biblical characters to a level they shouldn't be. Because I've heard so many times, well, if we could just be like David. Listen, 98% of the time, unless your name is Jesus, if you're in the Bible, it's because you're an example of what not to do. And God still loves you. Our goal is not to be like David. Our goal is to be like Jesus. And when we see that David acts in that certain way, we can say, oh yeah, like I can be like that. But if we elevate some of these biblical figures to the point of where Jesus should be, what we'll find is we start making excuses for what they've done instead of wrestling with and saying, David abuses power to abuse a woman, to murder a man, to cover it up, and he doesn't feel guilty until it's laid in front of him. How deeply was his heart hardened that he was like, you know what's not a problem? Murder. You know what's not a problem? For me to command this woman to come to my bedchamber. So we look at David not as an example to be held up, but as an example that says, this is a person in need of saving. So David hears from Nathan and he composes this psalm. And something that hit me that I had never thought about is when we read, Jonathan, can you put up that start, that preface piece again here? A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is direction for congregational worship. David writes a psalm of his repentance. Now listen, David was not a good guy. But he sees it laid before him and instead of hiding it and tucking it away, he brings it before his people. He goes, I'm king. I can't change what I did, but here's what I can do. And so we see this broken down as a psalm into pieces. And the first is repentance, then we get forgiveness, rejoicing, and identity. So as we look repentance, we look at the first six verses here of the psalm. So the first six verses start out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. Now watch where he keeps going here. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned. He gets to verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I want to stay on those two verses, five and six. He gets to this point where he realizes and says, listen, this sin has been a part of me even since I was conceived. This is a confession, but it's a confession of him admitting reality to say, I live in a world of sin. And if I try to deny that fact, I know that even since the beginning, that's how this came about. You delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What David is saying here is what Jesus will reflect as he teaches, which is to say, listen, it's not just, David's going, listen, it's not just what I did, it's what was in me. It's how I felt as I did it. That Jesus will come and take the commandments and he will say, listen, it's not just about not murdering, but I'm telling you the truth that if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you've already sinned. So what David is saying here is he's saying, listen, all of it is broken. And it'd be tempting to read, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Okay, what's the secret heart? I gotta find the secret heart. Listen, it's poetic. He's saying in those places that people can't see. It's secret not because it's something to be unlocked. It's secret because it's those places we hide. And so David starts off with this deep, moment of repentance. And he says, this this is what I have done. Now, what you need to know is that even as David brings this repentance, and we're going to see the brilliance of God's forgiveness, the earthly consequences for what he has done brings about the downfall of the kingdom. It breaks his family. So the tension we live in as people of God is we are called to repentance over and over, but being in repentance does not mean there is not consequence. You know, if you go out and do something illegal and you come to me and like say, hey, pastor, can you tell the cops like, you know, Jesus forgives me? I'll be like, yeah, Jesus forgives you. But there's earthly consequence for what you've done. And David knows this and still He's coming to repentance. And then we get into forgiveness, which is verses seven through 12. And it says this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice who's doing the action. David's not sitting there going, I'll give myself a clean heart. I'll purge myself with hyssop. No, no, no. You, Lord, give me a clean heart. You purge me. You make me whiter than snow. Restore the joy of your salvation. Why do we do confession and absolution every week? To restore the joy of salvation. So many times when we get caught up in things where our sin has taken hold, we go, what can I do to get better? 
we return back and we say Jesus is the one who makes us better. So we go from forgiveness to joy and watch where David goes now as he looks in these verses 12 through 17. Then I will teach the transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from your blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So in this moment, he confesses, he hears about the forgiveness of God for him, and his response is to say, I'm going to tell everybody about it. I'm going to tell everyone about how good you are. I'm going to proclaim it to the people who don't even know who you are. And in fact, I'm not going to bring you a sacrifice, because that was the ritual. You're supposed to come and bring a sacrifice. And he's saying, no, 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 it's not about the sacrifice. It's about my contrite heart. And so I'm gonna come with joy because I know that your forgiveness is good. And then in 18 and 19, it loops around to identity. And he says this, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. So Zion, Mount Zion, the place where the temple is, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, what David is realizing is what we would call the difference between justification and sanctification. That he looks and he says, I am justified only before God. He is the only one who can cleanse me. And bringing a burnt offering, doing this work of bringing A sacrifice doesn't mean anything if I don't first come to the one who brings me salvation. But if I'm there, if I come to the one who brings me salvation, I'll find joy in doing the work of bringing a sacrifice. Because I realize that is part of who I am. It is not who I am. That the sacrifice and the gift of good works is not about my salvation, but it instead is about how I live when an identity of salvation takes root in who I am. And what's amazing is this is the outline for worship. I almost called Matt this week and said, hey, but it was like Friday when I figured out I wanted to do this. I was actually, we were at a conference. I could have just like, pulled him aside. Anyways, I almost flipped us and did the sermon at the beginning and then followed it all at the end. But then I was like, nah, it's okay. We'll do it this way because what do we do when we show up? We sing as an introduction and and almost like a warm up to worship. But then what do we do? We confess our sins. We start there. We say, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. That is where we start. There is a reason that if you roll into narrative church, that's where we're gonna be after we're done singing. It's because the place we start out at is saying, Lord, I need you. 
that when I come and I show up here, I want to be aware that I am a person in need of salvation. And so we start with confession and absolution. We then confess who God is. We know who delivers the goods to us. We confess our faith because we remember, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This isn't about us trying to achieve it. It's about saying, Lord, do this. You're the one who does the work, so now do it in me. When we confess our faith, it's not just a place for us to know and remember who God is, but the confession of faith is about remembering that God is the one who delivers the goods, that we believe in God the Father. He created everything. We believe in his son, who is the one who delivers salvation. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us and creates the church and the body of Christ, because they are the ones who create the clean heart. And we see that all tied together in the meal that physical moment where God says, here it is. If you're at all confused if I can do this, take and eat. And so that all comes together. And then we rejoice. And this is a little bit more like across the board, right? Like we don't exactly follow it in terms of saying, okay, we did all these things and now we sing for joy. Like we're singing the whole worship service, right? There's temptation to look and say, when we sing, when we come in and we have this strange like karaoke time together of everybody singing, like there's temptation for us to go, oh, well, what that's about is us, like God needs our praise. God's did not, he doesn't need our praise. Like this is the guy who looked at the planet and said, you know what that needs? A platypus. Right, like infinite creativity, infinite understanding, all of those things. We sing praise because of the joy we have for him. He's not a God sitting on a throne going, come on, tell me how great I am. He understands that when we rejoice and sing about who he is and what he's done, it transforms us. And it is out of our transformation that that flows. We sing in church to be reminded, to have those things to hold on to. I love singing um, His Mercy is More. Why? Because when I'm having a bad time during the week, let me tell you about a song that I'm just going to crank. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. My sins, they were many. His mercy is more. but also I get to live in that joy. I get to put words to how I feel and it changes my outlook on who God is. So we come in confession. We come and see that God is delivering the goods to us. We rejoice and then we live in our identity. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I love that the way David flows this psalm is that when he says, once I've received all these things, everyone is going to know how good you are. Everyone. 
a, a traditional liturgical um, church service, there's a, a point where this is used in a chant. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's all the chanting you're getting from me. <laughs> Write it down. But I love that idea. And maybe it's something we start incorporating, something like that to say, listen, I want to be so full of the gospel of what you've done that when my mouth opens, your praise comes out. And I love that David, right before this, when he says, you know, here's all the ways that your salvation is going to hit me. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That he's found his identity. That he's like, I'm supposed to be the one declaring God. I lost my way. I'm a sinful man. I'm a broken man. I am so far from him. And for the rest of his life, this transgression in and around what he has done with Bathsheba and Uriah will haunt him and destroy his family and do all of those things. And yet he will say, but how do I point people to God. It's not an excuse for what he's done. And we should never make excuses for sinfulness like that. But we know that God will use the declaration of forgiveness. And then it comes, wow. And then it comes back to our identity in 18 and 19, which seems to be these throwaway verses where it's about Zion and about how we're supposed to, you know, God will bless Zion uh, about, um, you know, bringing this, this sacrifice. But what that is, is this is a capstone of identity that says, if I confess and God forgives and I rejoice and declare, the capstone is that Zion will be in your good pleasure and you will build up the walls of, of Jerusalem. You will delight in right sacrifices. And for us, as people following after Jesus, what that means is we will rejoice that God is going to build his church. That he is the one in charge, not us. That he will keep doing that. And in fact, in Ephesians, where it says we are created for good works, for these sacrifices, we can rejoice in them again, because God will delight in our good works, not because they're gaining us heaven, but because he gave us heaven. And now we get to serve and sacrifice and love in the ways he has set before us. Sometimes in our background and heritage as Lutherans, um, we want to make sure there's a, a delineation between saving grace of Jesus and our good works that our good works cannot be the thing that saves that us. And that is so incredibly true. But sometimes we get so caught up in that that we lose the fact that God is working in that moment when we do good works. And what I love in this psalm is it shows that God delights when we sacrifice in the way he's called us to. He rejoices when that happens because he's called us to love him and love our neighbors. And it's not like he's up there with, you know, this giant bulletin board going, all right, Ted did a bad thing. You know, 
There we go. Oh, Ted did half a good thing, you know? Cleaned one dish, little Mark, right? Like, you know, it's not that he's up there doing that. Instead, he says, listen, when your identity dwells in me, when I give you the clean heart, I'm gonna rejoice when you do the good works because you're not doing them for yourself. You're doing them for others. And in fact, I love Luther talks about this and he says, our good works are for our neighbors. And the freedom we find when we can move from repentance to forgiveness to rejoicing is that we discover our good works don't save us, but they're a gift on top of our salvation. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. When we live in our identity, that goes repentance, forgiveness, rejoicing, sacrifice. God rejoices because he goes, you're not lost. You're not trying to do it yourself. You understand who cleanses. You understand who does that action. So then as you go out and do, it's for me and it's for your neighbors. And he rejoices because that's how he created us to function. And so we rejoice in that fact. When you encounter those moments in your life where the sin seems insurmountable, repent. look and see and live in that reality of saying, I did that. But know that God's forgiveness is right there. It is there for you. And then rejoice. Don't shut up about it. Like just open your mouth and let your lips declare the praise of God and who he is and seek after him. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people who constantly struggle with our own sin. But let us not lose sight of what you have done. That as we confess who we are and how we have sinned, let your forgiveness cleanse us. Give us a clean heart. And let us live not from our own need to try and find salvation, but the realization that salvation found us. And Lord, may we take that and do the work that you have set in front of us. Lord, may we rejoice again and again and again. May we tell all the people we see good news of what Jesus has done for us. And then, Lord, may our good works not be a burden, but instead be for your love and the love of our neighbors, that we can walk out into this world, not with the heavy weight of obedience, but with the joy of saying, I am a forgiven child of God, cleansed by him. His salvation has found me.
And so I walk in his ways. Lord, all these things I pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.